Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom do you say that I am? This is a question that Jesus asked his disciples at one point during his ministry while he was leading them and teaching them. And at that time, they had reported that some of the people who had encountered Jesus and who had been listening to his teaching, some people thought that Jesus was John the Baptist. Some thought that he was Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets who somehow had come back from the dead and who had continued his prophetic work. Peter responds to this question of Jesus in this way. Matthew 16, verse 16, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Or as we translate it in many translations, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who is Jesus? Who is he? There are many people in the world who wouldn't profess to be Christians, but who would acknowledge that the Jesus of the Bible really did exist. Around Christmas time, uh, a year or two ago, I was in line at the grocery store, and there was a, an issue of Life magazine uh, sitting there at the rack by the, or in the rack by the, by the checkout counter, and the title of that issue was Jesus. Who do you say that I am? And I brought the issue home and, and checked it out. And the basic tenor of that issue, of that article, was that whether you're a religious person or not, the person of Jesus of Nazareth is someone who is to be reckoned with. If only for the fact that he and his followers have had a tremendous influence upon this world. Much of Western culture is shaped by Christianity. He is someone who ought to be taken seriously. And as the church, we believe and profess this fact much more strongly than the rest of the world. We believe and profess this with the highest urgency. We believe and confess who Jesus is and what he has done according to the word of God himself. For us this afternoon, we have a question that is a little bit more pointed, a little bit more specific. What does it mean that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the anointed one of God? That's what Peter confessed that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. This is what the church confesses and professes about Jesus Christ. This is what we know to be true. This is what we need to believe. That he came into this world, that he took on flesh, that he was anointed to the office of prophet, priest, and king for our sake and for the glory of his name. Toward the end of this service... This congregation is going to stand up. This is a very important thing that we're going to do. We're going to stand up together, and we are going to confess together. We're going to say together as one, I believe in God the Father Almighty, 
creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ. It's urgent that we're able to confess this. It's a powerful thing to confess. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. And so that's our theme this afternoon. The Christian, or the church, confesses the Christ. And so we'll see two aspects of this. First of all, of course, we're going to consider what it means that uh, Christ, that Jesus has this office. What does that mean? And then we'll uh, see afterward uh, concerning the office of the Christian. What does that mean for us? So our catechism, this instruction in the Word of God, our catechism doesn't question whether or not this is the case that Jesus is the Christ. This, it, it affirms it to be true. It takes it as a given that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. Now, why is he called that? Why does he have that title? Well, the first line there explains that Jesus has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to do this and that and that, these following things that we'll see in a moment. He was ordained and anointed to this very special task. Now, I want to see if some of the children here can, can think of a time when Jesus was officially called to this task that he was given. Can you think of a passage in the Bible where in a very public way Jesus was shown to be anointed for the work that he had come to do? We know that This was already determined in eternity. Before the foundations of the earth, our salvation was was decreed to be in Christ. This is uh, the the pactum salutis, the the covenant that, that God makes with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that salvation will be this way, that the Son of God will be sent into this world, and that he will take upon some role in order to redeem us from our sins. But, How was this worked out in history? How was this declared publicly that Jesus is the anointed one sent by God the Father into this world in order to do some work? So let's hold that question for a second. I think we should first explore what this anointing word means. Because that's what what Christ means. That's what Messiah means. The anointed one. What does it mean to be anointed? Is this something that happens to you sometimes? Do you get anointed, you know, once a week or something like that? Well, no, of course not. It's not something that is a part of our everyday life. It's a very special and religious thing. It literally means to pour ointment on or pour oil upon So I think it's helpful for us to think about who gets anointed in the Bible. What sort of people? So God has, at various times, instructed his servants to 
anoint different men in the Bible who have been given very special tasks. We can read about, for example, priests getting anointed. When Moses' brother Aaron became a high priest, Moses had to do this in a very ceremonial way. He had to, he had to uh, display him in front of the whole assembly, officially in public, um, showing that this is something that God himself was ordering to do, and he poured oil on Aaron's head and on the heads of his sons who were going to be the priest too. And this was a, a, a declaration that Aaron has been chosen by God and is being prepared by God for this special work. The oil being poured on Aaron was a proof of that. I want to read a little passage from Leviticus chapter 8. So, we read there, so this is, the, the tabernacle has been prepared, and now Moses and Aaron are being uh, ordained into this work as priests. So we read there, Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward and washed them with water. He put the tunic on Aaron, tied the sash around him, clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him. He also fastened the ephod with a decorative waistband, which he tied around him. He placed the breastpiece on him and put the urim and the thummim in the breastpiece. Then he placed the turban on Aaron's head and set the gold plate, the sacred emblem, on the front of it as the Lord commanded Moses. All very ceremonial. This is very important, right? Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and everything in it and consecrated them. He sprinkled some of the oil on the altar seven times, anointing the altar and all of its utensils and the basin with its stand to consecrate them. He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Then he brought Aaron's sons forward, put tunics on them, tied sashes around them, and fastened caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. They were anointed to this special work. So not only priests, but also kings, prophets, these men were anointed to that very special work that God had given them to do. Maybe you remember that when, uh, when Samuel was sent by God to Bethlehem to find who would be the next king after Saul, he inspected all of David's brothers, and then finally, he was told by God to anoint David. He took a flask of oil and poured it on David's head, and when everyone saw this, they knew that God was choosing David to be the next king. So, all right, prophets, priests, kings, these are all anointed with oil. They are set apart for this special task, and they are also equipped for this task. So, back to our question. A Messiah means one who is anointed by God and set apart for this specific task. Have you thought of a time when Jesus was called to his work by God and when very clearly and publicly he was anointed for this work? Who can think of it? Well, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, he comes out of the water after his baptism, and what happens? The Holy Spirit comes down out of heaven and comes upon Jesus, and God says to everyone, or for the benefit of everyone, 
says to Jesus, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is what anointing symbolizes. God himself calls prophets and priests and kings to their tasks, but they can only faithfully and effectively carry out their tasks because God gives them his spirit who equips them to this task. The oil being poured out on someone is a picture of God pouring out his spirit to the one that he calls to this office. This is what our catechism recognizes in this office of Christ. It's not three different offices of Christ, but it's one office of the Messiah, and it's, he has three uh, distinct tasks within that office. He is our, our chief prophet and teacher, he is our only high priest, and he is our eternal king. So, Let's examine each one of these and find out how Jesus fulfills these things for us. So first, prophet. How is Jesus our chief prophet and teacher? Well, what was the job of a prophet? What were they supposed to do? What was the task that God gave prophets in the Old Testament? Well, their main task was to tell people the word of God, right? To teach them God's will, to reveal God's ways, to make God somehow known to the people of God. How often do we read that a prophet proclaims to Israel, thus says the Lord, or this is what the sovereign Lord says, and then he tells them what God wants his people to hear. That's his job. Sometimes he has to warn them, you are acting wickedly and you have to repent. Sometimes uh, he gives the word of God as as instruction. God says that you should go to war against so-and-so. This is the will of God for you. Sometimes to reveal things about the future for the people of God. In every case, the prophet reveals and teaches God's people what God wants them to know. And the most important thing that a prophet did was to comfort the people and assure them that they were being made right with God. That was the most beautiful thing that people could hear from a prophet. To comfort them with the knowledge that even though they are sinners, the way of salvation is open. This is how some theologians characterize like, and summarize what is the history of Revelation. The whole history of God revealing stuff to his people should all be boiled down to this one beautiful fact. At all times during the history of God making himself known to his people and building his relationship with them, the one thing that God was always telling them was this, the way of salvation is open It's open for you. And little by little, more and more, it's it's shown just how that can be possible. It's only possible because your sins are being dealt with. The Messiah is going to come and finally secure this for you. This is what the author to the Hebrews writes in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is what we read in the past 
God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And the message has always been the same. The way of salvation is open, but in Jesus Christ that message is proclaimed loudly and clearly. The way is open. It is through Jesus, the anointed prophet of God, that this declaration is so visible, and it's through him that this way is actually opened. This marvelous thing is actually done. The way of salvation has been opened. That's why our catechism words it so beautifully in line with what is proclaimed here? Jesus is our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. Peter writes that these prophets from, from old, they, they searched the scriptures trying to understand with all their might, with every brain cell that they had, to try to determine the times and the circumstances that th such a thing would be done. And we have it all ripped open for us. The light has been shown on all of these mysteries. We know it now. It has been revealed through Jesus Christ. He finally reveals how it could be possible that the way of salvation is open. He was anointed with this task, proclaiming salvation, proclaiming it. As he says in Luke 4 at the synagogue, the Spirit of God is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. We have this word, this message in full now. Everything that we need to know about our salvation has been revealed, and Jesus Christ through his word and his spirit, he makes these things known to us. The way is open for sinners. We're acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our sins have been dealt with. Our sins have been dealt with through the other work of Christ. The other aspect of his office, his office as priest. So now, what about priest? What is the role of the priest in the Old Testament? You see, one thing that we can do to learn about what Jesus actually does for you, what he has accomplished and obtained for you, is to look back and see what was the task of all of these office bearers who were supposed to be pictures of Christ, images of Christ. What does a priest do? Well, a priest was responsible for doing all of the sacrifice kind of things at the temple, at the tabernacle. He was responsible for taking the offerings and slaughtering them and, and sacrificing them. For what? Well, in order to atone for the sins of the people. Right? It's the sins of the people that would have closed the way to God. 
But because sins are being atoned for, the way is being opened. That's what all the sacrifices in the Old Testament were for. They, they couldn't take away sins themselves, right? The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins, but they were pointing ahead, they were, they were teaching, and they were promising concerning the one true sacrifice that would be made by the one true high priest, Jesus Christ. All of the high priests of the Old Testament were all were, were copies. They were copies. They were images. They were pictures of the one priest who actually would be able to take away the sins of the people. This is what we read as, as that second reading from Hebrews. We read in uh, chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. Hebrews 10, 12 through 14. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins because all of those Old Testament ones couldn't actually take away sins. Christ himself, as priest, he offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He then sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, that is us. <clears throat> a priest made sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people so that God could live with them. Without these things being done, the glory of the Lord would leave. He couldn't be there with sinful people, but if the sins of the people were being dealt with, if they were being covered over, God can be with his people. The way to God is open. So a priest was responsible for seeing to it that sins were atoned for. The priest also had another job, right? And it was for it was to intercede for the people of God. Now what does that mean? To intercede. Well, it means that the priest was supposed to stand between two parties. The priest was to be the one who stands between us and God. A priest goes between God and the people and confesses the sins of the people and makes requests of God and offers prayers for the benefit of the people. The priest represents people before God. This is what Jesus does for us continually, still, today. We read this in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. See, the book of Hebrews is beautiful. It's this beautiful connection between all of the stuff that you see in the Old Testament, all of these mysterious and, and, um, and very confusing ceremonies and sacrifices, and draws these straight lines straight to Jesus Christ. This is what the priest did in the Old Testament. This is why Jesus is actually the priest that we need, right? This is all that was lacking in the Old Testament, in all of these ceremonies. This is how Jesus Christ is the better one, and the one that actually accomplishes the things that were just pictured in the Old Testament. So Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Listen to this. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus isn't ignorant of the human condition. Jesus is intimately aware of the struggles that you go through because he lived all of it. The worst things that we could go through, Jesus knows that suffering. He knows that pain. He knows what it means to be tempted so much more than even we know to be tempted. We get tempted to like, you know, level three and we, and we fall. But Jesus withstood temptation to the highest level. He knows temptation. He knows what we need to, to be able to withstand those things. And he is our priest, our advocate, sort of our, our lawyer who, who makes arguments on our behalf. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus Christ is your priest in heaven at this very moment, right now. Right now as we sit here, Jesus Christ is functioning for you as your priest so that you get exactly what you need at all times. He opened the way for us to be acceptable to God, and now he is the one who pleads for you. He pleads for you, knowing your needs, knowing your pain and suffering, petitioning for what you need, and ensuring that you receive it. What a priest we have. He washed all of your sins with his precious blood, and now is in the presence of God as our representative so because of our priest we can come boldly before God in prayer and know that we will receive what we ask of him in faith now the third part of Christ's office he is our eternal king In Jesus' earthly ministry, he was continually proclaiming the coming of his kingdom. He taught the truth in all of these parables. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. He taught the truth about the nature of life in his kingdom. This was his urgent message at the very beginning. Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is here. We heard about this a couple of weeks ago concerning the, the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was foretold to be the royal son of David, the one who would sit on the throne, whose kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. What a beautiful prophecy about the nature of the rule of Jesus Christ. You can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. What is that king like? What sort of kingdom is that? How, what is it like to live in a kingdom that has those kinds of qualities? Well, a godly king, a godly king makes sure that, that justice and peace 
and equity can, can prevail within that kingdom. That life for the subjects of the king is safe and secure. The king makes sure that, that the relationship between people and God is good. And so the conditions are there that God may be worshipped, that enemies of the peace of the kingdom are destroyed. Jesus is that very good and perfect king, the one who rules like no other king possibly can. We have these um, historical accounts in, 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 in the Bible, uh, you know, the books of, of Samuel and the, and the kings, where the, the kingship of David and Solomon are thought to be this, this golden age of the kingdom of Israel, right? Life in, in the kingdom of God. And how beautiful it would be to live at that time. And um, I love this passage in 1 Kings 10 when the, the queen of Sheba comes to visit uh, King Solomon. And she's heard all of these rumors about just how wonderful life is under the, the rule of this king. And she proclaims, like, how beautiful it is that you have a God, and it's because of his great love that justice and righteousness is administered in this land. It's a beautiful life to live under so great a king. And now a greater than Solomon is here, right? We are encouraged to joy because of the fact that we live today in that kingdom. It's here. We are subjects of it. Jesus is actively the king. We read in Hebrews 12 about this very fact. You have come to Mount Zion. This is not somewhere off in the future. This is today. We have today come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Today, we are living as citizens in the holy city of God. And therefore, since this is the case, do not refuse him who speaks, because he is the king and every knee will bow to him. Who is Jesus? Who do we say that he is? He is the king who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Whether, whether most people on earth recognize that and accept it and actually worship him is immaterial. This is who Jesus is. His kingdom is here. Right now, as we, as we sit here, we can be very confident that there is a process happening right now, the process of all things in heaven and on earth, little by little, being put under the feet of Jesus Christ, and everything eventually will be there. All things are being brought into subjection to him until, finally, everything is. That's encouraging in a world that is, that is very hostile to God and to his Christ, to his anointed. Sometimes it seems like the winds of the world are prevailing. They're so strong. The influence of 
of the world can take such a grip on us and turn us aside. But it's comforting for us to know how this all ends, how it all turns out. Jesus is King. Jesus is the Lord. And as his people, as the church, we have been given the great blessing now, not later, but now, the blessing of life in the kingdom of heaven with Jesus as our king. And when his kingdom is, is, is finished, what glory that will be. We have arrived in the kingdom of heaven, but it hasn't finished arriving and, and being established yet. The fullness of it is still to come. How blessed we are to be subjects of such a king in such a glorious kingdom. Hebrews 12, 28, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, cannot be shaken, every kingdom and empire and country and nation that has ever existed on earth can be shaken, can be moved, can be overthrown. And the people that come long after don't remember it anymore. But God's kingdom will not be shaken. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. How wonderful that this is our confession. I believe in Jesus Christ. That he has taken the God, the Son of God, true and eternal God, came to earth to take upon himself this task of the Christ for our sake. And he is glorified through this. All right, now what about us? What about our office as Christian? Well, briefly, let's turn our attention there. Question and answer 32. Why are you called a Christian? Because I am a member of Christ by faith and thus share in his anointing. In, in previous Lord's Days, uh, Leading up to, to this confession, um, you would have been led through the fact that we are sinners, that we need redemption somehow, and that we can't pay for our sins, but we need a mediator, a mediator who would do these things for us. And we would see there that when, when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, becomes our mediator, he steps into this office that man was supposed to carry out faithfully, but, but which we failed at. Right? We were created to be perfect and faithful human beings, and, and aspects of our life with God is shown in these three offices. Christ came and completed perfectly all of these tasks that we failed to do. And now that that office, that office of, of human, now that that office has been restored in Christ... We are joined to him and we participate in his work. 
So by faith, we are connected to Christ and we participate in the work that he continues to do. And we are given his Holy Spirit to equip us for that work. So I want to ask the kids again. I asked earlier if you could think of a place in the Bible where Jesus was anointed for his task as the Messiah. Now, what about you? What about you? Can you think of a time when, when you were anointed or when there was a picture displayed of your being anointed with the Holy Spirit? When you were anointed for your task as a Christian, was there a public thing that happened? Where it was clear to everybody that you, you yourself, were being marked out as a Christian. You were marked out as someone who belongs to God. I'm sure most of you got this by now. But if not, here's another little hint. Can you think of a time when something that symbolized the washing of the Spirit of Christ was done to you. Of course, it was at your baptism, right? So instead of, instead of oil being poured on you, water was poured on you. And there, God, and we, this is uh, from the form for baptism, the Holy Spirit assured you by the sacrament that he would dwell in you and make you a living member of Christ. You share in his anointing, as our catechism says. The Holy Spirit is given to you. And that's what's pictured in baptism. The Holy Spirit being given to you to unite you to Christ, to equip you to carry out the office of Christian. It's pretty neat to, to think back on that reading that we did from Leviticus chapter 8. Right? How... How glorious that ceremony was. Moses or Aaron and all and, and his sons standing there in the presence of the people of God, and all of this beautiful uh, clothing was put on them. The turban was put on Aaron's head, this gold plate was put on him, the, the breast piece with the urim and the thummim, all of these things that, that were shown. How important and wonderful and divine this task is. You, children, have been anointed in, in an even greater way than Aaron was. Isn't that incredible? You have been given a very special office, the office of Christian. So, we have a threefold aspect to our office of Christian as well. As prophets, we don't have to reveal the will of God anymore. It has already been revealed completely. It has been revealed fully by the Son of God. But as prophets, we continue to proclaim and confess what has been revealed. We confess it with our mouths, and we also proclaim it with our life. I love how the form for Lord's Supper uh, puts this. 
As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's something that we do as in our office as priest. We speak the truth in love to one another. We declare the goodness of God in the assembly. Every time we sing together, we are proclaiming with our mouths the goodness of God, salvation in Jesus Christ. That's your task as prophet. As priests, you don't have to make sacrifices for your sins anymore. One sacrifice, one perfect sacrifice has already been done. So we don't have to do that. So what do you do as priests? Well, as well, priests didn't only make offerings for sin, they also made thank offerings, right? Sin offerings was one, so one kind of sacrifice that, that priests made. This is what we do with our lives of worship. We offer the whole of our lives, our bodies, our entire lives as sacrifices of thankfulness to God. We draw near as priests to God with our whole life. And that was King's. We're given the task of participating in Christ's rule over his kingdom. This glorious king gives security and peace. He establishes justice and equity in his kingdom and as co-rulers. Co-rulers. Can you believe that? You are a co-ruler with Christ. We put into practice what he has established, living in this righteousness that he has obtained for us. We ward off the enemies of the kingdom by fighting, by truly fighting against sin and the devil. As kings and queens, we, we now live as we were designed to live, although not perfectly yet. But we have arrived. We have come to Mount Zion, as citizens of the holy city, we have already begun to live in the glorious kingdom of heaven as royal heirs of God himself. And this divinely royal life that you live, that the church lives, let this be a blessing to the world. A proclamation that Jesus is the Christ. Amen.